Welcome to the Confessions of a Loveaholic podcast. Join me, your host, Emmy Hernandez, on a journey where we help women heal and find soulmate love to help rewire their brain and nervous system so healthy love is on the radar and it feels like home instead of heartbreak. Whether you've found your soulmate or your journey is just beginning, we'll explore the energy healing practices like meditation, yoga, and have straight talk about toxic addictions. You deserve safe love. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to share the stories of everyday people doing remarkable things in communities of color, all while sipping on a glass of wine. In this episode, I got the chance to speak with Rosa Maria Hernandez, Director of Development and Member Services at Mana San Diego. She's steadfast in the belief that empowering one woman at a time can empower communities without forgetting who you are or where you came from. Her passion to empower others began at a young age, when at 17 she was diagnosed with juvenile diabetes and she took the initiative to learn about her condition in order to prepare to live with her diagnosis. In 2018, Rosa was recognized locally for her community activism in the California 79th District by Assembly Member Shirley Weber. Rosa's passion for her community was highlighted with an invitation to attend the United Nations 63rd Commission on the Status of Women in New York in March 2019. Most recently, Rosa was a national finalist of the Coors Light Leaders Program, a recognition of our country's top 12 most impactful Latino leaders. From her personal and professional experience, Rosa believes that Latinas can break the stereotypical cultural barriers by having equity, investment, and educating one person at a time, giving Latinas the opportunity for educational advancement, executive roles, and civic engagement, a true representation in today's community. So grab your glass of wine and join us for the chisme. Oh my gosh, I'm so good and I'm so happy to have you here. I say that with every person that comes on, but it's because I am truly happy for everybody who sits down with me. I feel like it's such a a privilege to have so many people want to share in this experience. So thank you. Thank you for having me and for choosing me to share this glass of wine with you. Oh, (laughs) of course, of course. And I'm just, yeah, we have so much to talk about. There's so much chisme that's going to happen. But before we get to the chisme, we always, we have to get to the wine first. We always talk about the wine first. So today, last week I had a wine from Valle de Guadalupe. And again, I have one from Valle. So it's a Santo Tomas Barbera 2015 Vino Tinto from Valle de Santo Tomas, Baja California. So... Let's take salud. Let's take a taste and and see what we think. I know. What do you think? I think spice. It's you can smell it, right? Yes, spice. Like the one in the back of your tongue. Yeah. Spice. Oh, I like that. I like the. I'm trying to. I need to smell it again. Yeah, it smells like kind of peppery, mm-hmm. and it sounds really weird because I'm not normally somebody who thinks that mm-hmm. but when I smelled it that's the first thing that I smelled and I love pepper and I love spice so there you go oh, yeah. of course. <laughs> so that's easy I'm as spicy as they come yes <laughs> so you are like me a native San Diegan we exist <laughs> we exist we are few and far between and you just told me that you were actually you grew up a few miles from where we are right now yes southeast San Diego southeast so tell me Growing up in Southeast San Diego, how do you think your neighborhood shaped your worldview? Oh, that's a good question. Definitely, it prepared me. Um, My mom, especially, uh, but it also liberated me. Really? Okay, how did it liberate you? Because it prepared me to address um, what many people might be scared of or intimidated by. 
and it introduced me to things that are taken for granted, I think, a lot of times in other neighborhoods. Something as simple as, um, you know, watering the neighbor's plants, going to our next door neighbor, Miss William, as an elder, and and making sure that she's okay. Um, And um, simple as watering the neighbor's roses, right? So being able to put cascadas de huevo, right, in the morning and and waking up every Saturday morning to the lawns being cut um, or, you know, the neighborhood viejito just walking by and saying good morning. I think... Um, it was a true neighborhood. It's un barrio, yeah. Yeah, was I was about barrio. to use that word and I was, I was about to say the same thing. That's so funny. So growing up, my we lived on the corner of a very busy intersection. Mm-hmm. And that's what my grandpa was always known as. Like everybody would call him grandpa and he would be in the front yard watering the roses. Half of the day he would be sitting under the carport, just sitting in the front. Okay. And everybody would pass by. Hi, grandpa. Hi, grandpa. So I totally like understand that particular feeling. Definitely. So that is so awesome. You knew your neighbors. You knew exactly what time they got home, what time they would get from work. Um, it was definitely uh, living in a low-income neighborhood was very important because when um, I believe her name was Mrs. Stevens, she was across the street, and whenever the grocery local grocery stores would deliver or food bank would give away bread or fruta or non-perishable items, we would just go across the street and she would like literally feed the whole neighborhood and and be able to. It was especially the bread. Oh, the bread! Oh, tiene pan de trigo this time, you know. <laughs> So it was something that you grew up and that you share with your neighbors. Says, hey, señora, la vecina, you know, the, ayer llegó el pan, you know. So being able to share communal and be communal in, the, in a different perspective that um, I miss it. Definitely I miss that kind of uh, living, not in the barrio right now. I definitely miss that aspect of it. Isn't it crazy? But even how much that changes once you move out of something that, you know, when you know your neighbors and I've been someone even here where I'm at now, I want to know all my neighbors. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of something that just kind of gets embedded in you. Right. Because mm-hmm. that's how you grow up knowing your neighbors, knowing here, knowing there, everybody knowing you. And I feel like as I've grown up, I mean, obviously I'm nobody would call me a wallflower anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like that feeling when you have it and it feels good, you want to keep that with you no matter where you go. Do you Definitely. And, I, and it's not always welcome to have to say, even if you're sharing a wall with someone, you could easily share a wall with someone never knew them. Yeah. I, and and I, I live in a condo now. And I have to say, the neighbor I do know from up above, like a Mexican guy, eh, <laughs> it's not like that trustworthy kind of oh, neighboring feeling, right? Yeah. Even though, hey, good morning. Hey, how you doing? But... In some weird way, because we're Latinos, I think yeah. he has my back because someone tried to break into my car. Oh, was oh my god! And he, like, totally, like, stepped... He's always watching, which makes me feel safe, actually. Because... <laughs> See, you like, always have that one person yeah. in the neighborhood that doesn't necessarily interact, but they watch. They, they watch. Everything. I'm like, damn, how much does he know about me? <laughs> but, hey, I was like, I'm very, very, very grateful because uh, I'm out on the lookout for them, too. So what do you, whether it's your immediate family or extended family, growing up in that type of area and how, what was like the family dynamic like? Oh my gosh. Well, I always had my primos around, uh, whether they were in Tijuana and coming visiting us or us going to them or my cousins that lived down the street. So uh, on my mom's side, mind you, I have four sisters. I'm one out of five. I'm the second out of five. I'm the second out of five. And growing up, and all girls, all girls. I thought it was bad with me and my two sisters. No, no, no. <laughs> One bathroom, two bedrooms, five girls. Oh, dang, girl. It does not include my mom and my daddy. Okay, so it, it was definitely an excite. There was never a dull moment, and I think that's why I consider myself being loud because I had to be loud. To or you're not heard. <laughs> we were. I was just talking about this with somebody because they asked me to say something, and it was like. I was like, oh, I don't need a microphone. Oh, no, no, I'm good. I got you, right? <laughs> yeah. And definitely, so I remember at a very young age, my, my father um, worked a lot and my mother was very involved. And to this day, that uh, trajectory of her willingness to be present in the, not just in the community, but in our lives, I could definitely tell you, we it, it pays off because 
a person who might have been a council member at the time now remembers my mom being one of those constituents and one of them is Juan Vargas who you know he's amazing and he's a big supporter in what I do now in my life and my career so everything's has in somewhere or another catapulted from that identity of having my family involved being involved through my parents or being involved in present whether it's in my primo's house I'm like oh yeah we used to you know play around and they used my tia used to pick us all up from the elementary school and and being able to be okay and saying hi to the police officer who always made sure we crossed the street you know I forgot his name I think it's Mr. Brown Officer Brown I think and you know having that connection to my now elementary school uh, principal who is now in my, who's been in my life indirectly, but now very prominently because of my career. She's one of the founders of the organization that I work for now, Romana. So it's, 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 it's a San Diego small, but the impact of the present, whether it's through our familia and our, um, and our, and, and, and our community has continuously been folded over and, and given us fruit for what it, who we are today. Oh, I love that. That's so awesome. I love, you're right. San Diego is a very, I, I grew up in North County and it was, it's a medium sized town. It's not obviously as big as San Diego, but I lived in Dallas for 15 years, which technically is a lot larger city than San Diego. But I always considered Dallas a small, large city as well, because when you get to know, especially within the Latino business community, mm-hmm. when you get to know certain people that community is very, very small. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's the same here. You know, San Diego is definitely a large city compared to other cities. It's a top 10 city in the U S so, but you start knowing, Oh yeah, I know this person. Oh yeah. I know this person and finding those cross, those those cross relationships that you're like, Oh wow. I had no idea. I've known you since I was in elementary school because you were at my principal's office all the time. And I call you Theo Danny because even though I didn't know who you were at the time, you were always around in our school. And now you are, I'm a colleague of yours in the field, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's funny because I always give these kind of surnames to individuals, like I wouldn't call them elders, but just people, colleagues that are older than me that I've grown up with in some sort of way from um, politicians to um, community leaders to, who are now colleagues of mine in the field, which is kind of beautiful because they've kind of seen me grow up as well and, and been very supportive. So um, I always make fun of my mom. I'm like, is my mom calling you? I was just talking to um, <laughs> councilwoman um, Monica Montgomery yesterday, actually. I'm like, Monica, has my mom been calling you? I'm so sorry she has. Because <laughs> that's kind of like who my mom was, which has defined who I've been to and the kind of outgoing um, relationships that I love has allowed me to thrive in, in, in my career path. You got it from your mama. I did get it from my mama. <laughs> <laughs> so you were actually diagnosed mm-hmm. with type 1 diabetes when yes. you were 17 years old. Yes. Which isn't that a little bit late to be diagnosed? I do have a, but there's a follow-up question yes. beyond that. Looking back, I mean, I, I don't know because I'm not, I'm not type one or type two, even though that runs in my family. So Mm -hmm. thank the Lord. And hopefully Mm -hmm. that, you know, I can be healthy and I, that can continue. Um, But looking back, do you think that there were signs of, of having type one diabetes previously that you or your parents didn't have access to know or have any idea of how to look for that, that you would be able to spot now? Yes, and it's a little bit longer uh, answer. So Take the kind of <laughs> the kind of diabetes I have is not your abuelita's diabetes, right? So let's not. That's type two. I have juvenile. So both, and I'm not a medical professional, but I'm just sharing from my my personal uh, experience. Right. The kind of diabetes I was born with it. With what does that mean? Well, ideally, juvenile diabetes. Uh, in its um, original form, per se, you're usually diagnosed when you're a baby. What is diabetes, type 1 diabetes, or juvenile diabetes? Well, it gets treated very similar to type 2, but the difference is that when I was a kid, I was born with some kind of chromosomal imbalance that said, you have type 1 diabetes, and it was like a light switch. And the way that light switch gets activated so that the, the diabetes gets 
turned on, which means is you have some kind of illness that triggers your body to attack itself. So when I was 15 or 16, almost 16, I got pneumonia. And I lived a normal life with my broke fingers. I had, I was normal all of my, my life until I, I got pneumonia and that triggered. So what happened? So your, your body, system. your immune system, so your body attacks your pancreas thinking that's the source of the illness or the problem or the bacteria or the virus and it kills it. So your body attacks itself. And that's my insulin pump, by the way, oh. <laughs> vibrating. I was like, oh. <laughs> it tells me what my shirt is. So I'm bionic. I'll show you in a little <laughs> bit. Uh, and so it keeps me alive every day. So one of the things is I don't have a functioning pancreas, obviously, because my body killed it. So that's why I am a diabetic. So it was basically dormant until you got it gets sick. activated. Oh, and that's why it's okay. called juvenile. Uh, well, and my, that's how I was explained. Is it be, it's called juvenile diabetes because this what happens when you're a two year old and a toddler or a little or a little kid you get sick often yeah so if you have that that in your body that's already, usually what triggers it that's usually what triggers an ear infection a throat infection like something and it, uh, the source then says okay that's the source so your body tells it so there's something in your wiring that you're born with it that says when this happens kill it right? right that's how your body naturally focuses so that's what happens with type 2 diabetics it's a slow process it's because it's a wear and not process so it's your body telling hey um there it's think of it as legos so this is the insulin cells and this is the sugar cells and it does not connect it stops connecting so what it does it gives you a pill that helps it connect and function and type 2 diabetes is preventable no diabetes does not have a cure i don't care how many nopales or cinnamon you eat no (laughs) so you you will get it it will develop you mean whether it's even type 2 yes there is no cure if you have it in your family you're gonna get it it's all about when you get it and how do you prevent it so that it doesn't affect you in the long run this is really good to know because it i have a very long family history with diabetes. Mm-hmm. My mom has diabetes. She just was recently within the last few years was diagnosed with diabetes and she's 64. Mm-hmm. Um, and she controls it with Eating, diet. diet. Yeah. yeah. And exercise. So, but I wish I could be a type two diabetic. I would, I would love to. Right. Uh, but the problem with that is, is that usually you get signs years before you actually get diagnosed. You get, you know, a little weakened insulin resistance. It's called insulin resistance. So with that said, your, your body's resisting the insulin that you're producing. So the lower carbs, again, this is a science, but in other words, the less carbs you eat, the less sugars you eat, the less amount of of food that you eat, the less you're going to think of it as hitting the brakes. I always like to explain it this. Think of it as hitting the brakes. The more you hit the brakes, the faster they wear out, right? That think of it in the same way in theory. So when your mom, if she controls it by eating less, less carbs, she's going to hit the brakes less, right? Which means her organs are going to last longer, right? Gotcha. There you go. Eventually, eventually that's not going to function for her. So she's going to need medication and eventually that medication is not going to function. She's going to eat insulin. I skipped the whole process and went straight into insulin because my body does not have the organ to produce it. Oh my gosh. So that's so interesting. And something that I need to make sure I'm more, cause honestly I had no idea. I mean, yes, you tell your doctor what you have family history of. And I just went to the doctor. Mm-hmm. I there, I don't have any, I don't even have pre-diabetes, anything mm-hmm. like that, any symptoms of it, but now it's just now it's to really be top of mind. I mean, especially if you have diabetes in your family, mm-hmm. how did that, once you were diagnosed, how did that kind of play into that time in your life because you're 16, 17 years mm-hmm. old. And that's a really, you're still almost like a confusing. You're probably getting ready to finish high school or go to college. Mm-hmm. Then this is like a really huge change at a really kind of pivotal time. In your life. How did that play into that time? It's kind of shocking because I don't think I processed it um, as deep as I process it now or consciously. I was, I literally ended up um, little by little seeing the symptoms. I would drink a a thing of Gatorade per period in high school. I was my senior year. 
so I couldn't see the same. I had the symptoms. I would go to the uh, I would go to the bathroom three four times a night. I would go to the bathroom another eight times during the day. So think of it as a grape becoming a raisin. It's everything's drying. That's what happens when you have diabetes. You are a grape. So if you're not processing the sugar, you become a raisin and shriveled up. And that's what happens to all you, essentially, visually, to your organs. So if you're a diabetic, in other words, you will be a diabetic. It's in your, it's in, or, it's, it's, it's in your hormones. So again, no matter the amount of nopales, cinnamon, <laughs> uh, I mean, you name it, that will, there is nothing that will cure diabetes. But there's a way to manage it and live the healthiest version of you, which is it's been kind of my life's journey in a way. So when I was 17, I was a senior in high school. I had just graduated, maybe like a week after, and I probably lost like 30 pounds just like that in like two, three months. I lost it. And I was shriveling up. I was becoming a raisin because I wasn't processing. I didn't have insulin to process the sugar. So what happened is um, at that time, my dad was going through a job transition and we didn't have health insurance. So my mom was like, go to the community clinic. Like it's here. Like you're sleeping 15 hours a day. What's wrong with you? And I'm like, I'm tired. So they thought throughout my senior, I had just had senioritis. I was always tired. I was always waking up late. I couldn't wake up. So my mom would all be like, Levántate del autobús, te va a dejar. Like the- <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So not understanding the symptoms of you cannot wake up when you have high sugar. You feel groggy. You know how you feel when you overeat? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's yes. how you feel when your sugar is elevated. So imagine your abuelitas and your abuelitos not knowing how, how they're tired. They're always sleepy, mm-hmm. that they're always thirsty. They can't see the TV anymore. That's what I was going through. The symptoms are very similar when your body, when sugar is high, when sugar is low, the body the symptoms don't change. It's just how you approach it. So that happened. I went to the clinic, the local clinic, community clinic. It was community pediatric, which is very funny. It comes full circle since then. It's been, um, I, I went in there and they're essentially pre-med students. They're in med school. I mean, they're med students in med school and it's a little mobile clinic and they go and check you out and do like free exams. Right? So I went in there and they're like, Oh, you're 17 what's going on like no you're not pregnant like no you're not. i was like of course i'm not pregnant i'm so virgin like <laughs> and then they're like yes yeah sure. i was like no no really like have you met my mom i'm virgin like no <laughs> so they came and checked my sugar with those uh those monitors the, the ones that you feel like you see on three that are pricked and it wasn't reading because my sugar was so high it wasn't reading. So I got pricked like 15 times and I had like three med students come in. So I had like the, uh, the, the, the physician that was observing them and they came in and they brought like a special machine and they're like, my sugar was reading at over 800. <gasps> oh my God. That's like, they were looking at me like I was crazy. Like you shouldn't be walking. I was about to say like you would, oh my gosh. Now what's like for people who aren't aware, what is and average Normal. should be between 80 and 120. I don't care what your abuelito tells you if they eat a concha at night. It's always between 80 and 120. That should be ideal. Oh, my gosh. So, yes, I was like a walking sugar cane, right? essentially. So they're looking at me. And then they had me call my mom because I was, I was 17. A mosquito would have died by My mom is getting rid of sangrona, mija. <laughs> So, um, it was very interesting. Um, it was, it was like diabetes. That's what my abuelita has. Like you crazy. Like I had never heard of diabetes in a kid like my age. So here my, comes my mom and my mom's like, get diabetes. No, you don't have diabetes. So then they told her, you need, we need we're going to send an ambulance. We're going to go to children's. And my mom's like, no, 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 no. We're going to go to the community connect with their little doctors. Okay. I was like, Okay, so here we go to the community. Yeah, my boy, I spent another hour. And they're like, she could have a heart attack if she doesn't go. Like, she could die. You don't understand. And they're like, my mom's like, no, no, no. I want a professional second opinion. So we went. And le pusieron una regañada a mi mamá for having me wait for two hours to be seen by second doctor to be told the same exact thing. So they rushed me to Children's, and I was there for a week. Oh my God. In the, in the ICU. Um, 
as they started like providing me with insulin and slowly because you can't be dropped right away. You sure can be dropped. You could die. So um, your body's in shock. So they had me there for about a week. And it was funny. It felt like it was a funeral because I didn't let me see no! <laughs> And then another one of my guests crying. And I'm like, why are you crying? I'm alive. Like, But I had, I mean, me and my 17-year-old mind, I was still processing because I'm very witty. I'm very fast in my thinking. And I was like, why is everybody like, I think if I'm dying, you know? Yeah. So it was a very interesting coming to terms. It took me about five years to truly accept and manage my diabetes. And it's an everyday thing, to be honest with you. On an e- easily on a day, I could be 200. And just, okay, I know how. To, it's accepting where you're at. It's kind of like that body image um, accessibility to have and understanding that that's where you're at, but that it's not permanent. And yeah. I think that one of my good friends who's a therapist um, has always told me that in order to kind of battle on that side of, of me, because it's been very difficult as a professional having to explain to someone that your mood is affected. Um, your sexual activity is affected, your vision is affected, your emotional state is affected because it's a hormone. Insulin is a hormone. So it affects everything you do every day. On typical, I make about 180 life and death decisions every day. Oh my gosh. More than the average person. I love hearing this from your perspective because you've had to, you've grown up, you've essentially been living with this and for you know, 20 years plus years, 21 years, 22. Wow. And this is kind of, honestly, this is making sense within my family of certain things. Like I knew like my feel went blind from diabetes. Mm, My, yeah. Like I I know like what the complications have been that my family has received, but nobody has ever really explained it. And from somebody who's actually, Without a, like a medical degree, but to be able to explain it in layman's terms Mm -hmm. is really, for me, really making sense and starting to make those connections and and as to why those things were happening. I just knew it was a complication of diabetes. I just Mm -hmm. knew my cousin had toes and actually she had her leg amputated as a complication of diabetes and so there's been a lot of but it I always thought well they're just not taking care of themselves and I know that's part of it because they're all type they're all type two as well and a lot of it is they just weren't taking care of themselves they were letting things go but I think a lot of that also has to do with the healthcare system that we have Mm -hmm. because if you're not working or things are taking a long time or to to go through the system if you are unaware of what the true consequences can be and then it's taking six months to see a doctor it's taking however to see a doctor Mm -hmm. then all of that compounds in regards to the the quality of care that you're going to get and that you're going to give yourself and it takes time it's taking me a long time you have to be your own doctor not as far as self-diagnosing but your own advocate yes so you have to think about it before i go to a doctor I'd make a list exactly. And I have an ongoing list on my cell phone of the conversations that I have with my doctor and I message my doctors and I make sure all my doctors are aligned. They're my team. They're my, they're my team. I call them. You guys are my team. Mm -hmm. So when I decide to have children, my endocrinologist who is my diabetes doctor is in touch with my OBGYN is in touch with my primary care doctor and is in touch with my, even with my therapist, all of them are my team. And I need a team to survive. And I need my team to be on the same page and to be able to read each other's notes. And it's to that point where I know that I cannot do this alone because I have had no qualms in firing somebody on my team. I think that's what you just said is so important to be your own advocate because not only are women tend to listen to less when they go into the doctor, but women from minority communities and communities of color are listened to even less. Of course. So to have to be able to be aware and to demand that, right? You have to demand mm-hmm. that. That's the only way you're going to be listened to. That's the only way you're going to be able to form the team that you're saying is right for you. And it's okay to shop around. I mean, we shop around for purses and for shoes. I mean, we shop around and negotiate for I mean, at the Swami, why would we do that with their own personal health, right? Yeah. Um, you want to feel um, healthy in the inside. And what better way than to ask? But you have to continuously be curious 
I wonder, is that the best thing? And I, I have, and it's, the way I look at my doctors, they are my team, but I am the final decision as to what, what I want. Mm -hmm. And um, I can, I want them to be on board with what my vision of me is. Now, what of their vision of me is. So I ask a question saying, listen, um, let's see, uh, Dr. Truth, she's amazing. She is, shout out to her. She's amazing. She's the head of endocrinology. And, and I told her, I am not feeling heard. I've been wanting to consider starting a family. And because I have other illnesses, I have PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is very predominant in the Latino community, underdiagnosed, and it goes hands in hand with type one. I have to be having certain conversations before I even make my decision to decide if I can move forward to get pregnant, to try to get pregnant. So that is usually a three-year conversation that goes on that I need to be prepared of, that I need to be at the right weight, that my sugars need to be at a certain level, that my, you know, that my OBGYN needs to see me at a certain time so that I can start certain medication so that I'm able to get pregnant. I'm not going to learn by mistake. I'm going to prepare you so that you're my team so we can execute the plan. So I'm that type of person that I'm like, how can you help me get here? And I lead the conversation. My doctors do, like, I mean, of course, they are leading the conversation with me, but it's a partner. It's an equal partnership. And I take their advice, but I also ask them why they're choosing this format. So when I have a new medication that's on the market and they're like, we want you to shift to this medication, I'm like, is this because the company decided to go with that generic brand instead of the one that I've been on for the last 20 years and I work really well? Um, actually, I want you to please submit an override. Because I, I don't want to go on that new medication. I, I will I will try it. But until then, I want to keep, you know, I want you to override because I've been on this medication for 20 years and it works perfectly well. Why am I going to change? Just because you guys did a deal and, and, you know, being able to have, be candid with your doctor saying, you know what? I would really like to stay on this medication. I will give yours a try, but I want to keep my prescription at this level. Or I want to keep trying. Or I really deserve to try that 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 one medication that is not covered by my insurance. But I know that by you writing the red tape and writing an override and saying why I need it, that could be done. So it's, again, being an advocate goes beyond seeing a doctor as, yes, they're your teammate, they're your equal, not as they're the end-all, be-all. And I think that's a cultural thing. Yes, for sure. Because we want, especially... How many times, especially when we were younger, I don't think I ever saw a Latino doctor, mm -hmm. you know, and it's almost like this, we look to elder and we're taught, you look to people, you look to your elders with respect, mm -hmm. you look to people that maybe have more education with respect or whatever, you go to the doctor, you show respect. It's always like this thing that we're taught mm -hmm. and not to say that you should, first of all, everybody should be taught with respect. We're, Treated, excuse me, not yes. treated with respect, regardless of where they are. But there's something within our community that we elevate these people oh, yes. to like godlike status, mm -hmm. and they tell us, es que no <laughs> "Yeah," and then that's it. It's like, oh, and I'll be off. No, did you get a second opinion? Pero por qué? Because you want to challenge to see if it's true. Yeah, and and that's for me. Like I recently did that. I had an amazing OBGYN, mind you. Uh, had a, they found eighth growth in me. That's part of my PCOS. It's another hormone imbalance. And this OBGYN, he was very sweet, very great, but he just, he was kind of like probably not the best, it wasn't the best match for what I wanted. He was a great surgeon. Um, I had the eight, eight growths removed. If it wouldn't have been for him, I wouldn't have found him. But he wasn't the best OBGYN for me or having the conversation moving forward of how I would like to even try to see if I can get pregnant. So I went back to my endo and I said, listen, and I went to my diabetes educator, who's my partner in crime, Sherry. And, and I was like, I don't feel comfortable. It took me about three months. I do not feel comfortable. I want to have this conversation. I understand that some of these procedures are not covered by my insurance, but I know because I have this medical this medical condition, it could be overwritten and it should be covered. It is my right to, how am I going to be not covered for something that you don't even know has been treated, right? 
And they're like, you're right, you're right. So I kept trying, I kept trying. And within the support of my doctors and my team, I found a, another OBGYN that on the first visit, he's like, you're ready to try. You know, I can put you in medication. And yes, it will be covered. Because I can override. So again, within the same company, I found that same solution. Again, so it's, it just goes to show that you can't give up. It's with anything. You can't give up. Diabetes, my sugars will not always be perfect. They're hardly perfect. They're usually about 70, 80% in range, which means even after I eat, right? But it's not always, it's nothing is permanent. And if you go back to that sense of don't give up, right. nothing is permanent, you continue to evolve. Even if that means changing doctors, changing medication, taking a leap of faith, um, type one diabetics we're like our own little community <laughs> and we're like the uber testers of thing and we push technology to new limits yeah three years ago there was um this this called uh this technology called the closed loop technology which is the closest that you can get to a fake pancreas so your pump starts and starts by the reading of the sugar right and a lot of your listeners might be like what the heck is she talking about but your when your sugars drop under 80 the 8120 rule then you have too much insulin in your system. You need sugar. When your sugar is too high, you need more insulin to drop, right? Well, they invented this closed loop onto diabetics. And now guess what? It just came out with the, I, I, with my newest pump that I have, has that technology. So it automatically... It automatically starts and ends after it drops or, uh, 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 drops or goes high by a certain level. Wow. And I have, I, again, I have without endorsing anybody because I love them. But I publicly say all the time, hey, I'm a, I'm a Dexcom and Tandem user because they save my life every day. A Dexcom is a, it's called the continuous glucose tester that you see on the arms of a lot of people. Right. That they, uh, checks their sugar every five minutes. So is that the I, one you scan? No, that's a different one. Very similar. My CGM. dear, I had that okay. one. Okay, that one, they're amazing. And, and that should help a lot, of Latin, a lot of Latinos and future diabetics because this wave is coming. I've been talking about it for eight years. This wave is coming and the community is not ready. You need to be your own advocate. So that's why I started being a lot more transparent and vocal about what it means to be an executive with type 1 diabetes and the, the norms of what, a diabetic overall goes through much less an executive or a woman or a Latina, let's just say, right? Because yeah. the kind of diabetes I have, only 10% of diabetics have. And then Latinos are a very minute group. So when I find another Latina, like I said, I've only known uh, two other Latinas. Um, and then as of two weeks ago, I found one more, which is amazing. Um, you're a square. Yeah. You're like, you're like me. Oh my God, you know? So I get it. For me, it's it's just been, it's my journey, my journey to not just share what I've gone through, but help the Latino community comprehend, not just hear, comprehend the information, which yeah. is what I think most organizations and companies don't get. I mean, obviously having a voice like that and going through everything and being your own advocate, and I'm sure you've done a lot of, research and a lot of this and you know all of these things I kind of want I want to go back a little bit to when you graduated mm -hmm. it's time to go to school uh -huh. you stay local yes I had to it wasn't a choice I had to the doctors told my mom it wasn't a good idea for me to leave and you said it took five years so had you you probably would have not managed it as well as you were you know I party I mean I party too but <laughs> But yes, yes. So you're in SD, San Diego State. Yes, SDSU for life. <laughs> See. I didn't go to SDSU, but that's those are the, hey. the, the ones that we went to growing up, all yes. the games. Um, was there anything that you felt like you were unprepared for, whether it was, you know, health-wise, mental-wise, education-wise, culture-wise, any of those things? Because that's a pretty – it's a very large school. So going into this large institution – that you wish you would have known? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've always been a, a seeker. I like to seek people and support groups and, and like find that sisterhood. I still don't think they've gotten it right as far as providing the right resources for people with disabilities like me. I think there's a long way to go, but the possibilities are endless. Uh, because what I don't think 
our community knows yet because we've so been in the shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, being a diabetic and not understanding that my concentration was being affected by my high sugars because they weren't necessarily always under control, but how stress affects your sugars and then how uh, sitting down, for example, affects my sugars. That's why I stand up in my office and have a stand-up desk. All of that affects your sugar. So if your sugar is high, you can't concentrate the best. You have anxiety. And a lot, no one told me that when I became a diabetic. No one told me that I was going to look at, like if I was a drug addict when I was shooting, shooting up, per se, when I was taking a <laughs> shot. No one told me that I was going to have to wake up three, four, five times a night to check my sugar because I didn't have a CGM at the time. So if I'm high, I can't, I can't go to sleep. I have to give myself the right correction. And then make sure I don't drop too fast. So if I if you're high in sugars, high in sugar, yes, yes, yes. Thank you, thank you. You know, I'm I'm all for you know any kind of healing, but no, I'm talking specifically. It's funny because I always talk exactly. This is a perfect example. So I would be like, oh my god, I'm high in class, and they would look at me. I'm like, no, like my sugar, and they're like, yeah, your sugar, you know. <laughs> so I got you. I yes. got you. So being able to have the right support system therapists, um, medical professionals that would have had the knowledge because I really don't believe the knowledge was really clear out there. It's just, we're just touching on the surface of it. Isn't that crazy? Well, yeah, it's hormones. I'm like, how do you not affect? I mean, people think like when you're going through your your menstruation cycle that you're affected, that your mood's affected, that you're not concentrating, right? Imagine if you feel like that all the time. Oh my gosh. I don't want to feel like that all the time. Imagine if you're sleeping in the middle of a boring chemistry class and you can't concentrate. So those are the kind of things. So I actually got kicked out my freshman year at San Diego State after I couldn't pass a stupid math exam, even though I had like a 4.0 GPA. Are you serious? Yes. So you got like from the institution itself, the university? Yeah, because I I was remedial. I wasn't prepared. Right. Obviously, I wasn't prepared. Most students aren't. And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? So I had to go back to a community college and then transfer back in a year later to be at that same level. But I would, I, I would be like, yep, I'm coming back. And I would, there was this thing called cross enrollment. So I would take one class at like Southwestern College and I would cross enroll all of my classes at San Diego State. So it was like, I'm still at San Diego State. <laughs> you still had that university yes. experience. So that was for me, uh, one place I found a lot of support was within my sorority and my EOP counselor, Liz, and she's amazing. So actually that was beautiful transition into my next question (laughs) because you eventually became a founding sister of, I want to make sure I'm saying this correctly, Lambda Theta Alpha, which is a Latina sorority. Yes. It's the first Latina sorority in the history of this nation. Okay. I have friends who are gammas. Yes. We collaborate with them all the time. Okay. So I have a lot of friends who are gammas. Yes. I went to my, my university experience was as a older student, so Mm -hmm. I never felt like it was weird for me. I'm like, Hey, I'm 35. I want to play. No, that's not going to (laughs) happen. But what made you look around? Because obviously there's a point where you're looking around and you're saying, there's nobody here serving me. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So at what point did you look around and say, Hey, there's, I feel cause, and tell me if I'm wrong, because Mm -hmm. obviously I, I don't know. I'm not a, so I was never a sorority member. But I feel like having a sisterhood within a Latina sorority is very different than maybe a typical everyday sorority, what you would think Mm -hmm. an everyday sorority is. So how did that impact, like, how did you go about that and become one of the founders? And then how did that impact your college experience and even beyond, even now? Definitely. So for me, it all started in Summer Bridge. So Summer Bridge 99 <laughs> at San Diego State. And, it sounds like a freestyle concert. Oh, my gosh. It was a hoot. And I'm still really good friends with a lot of the people there. Actually, about about 70% of the people that went. That set the tone for me. That made it different. And I was not about sororities at the beginning. I was like, ugh. But I did have people previously to that that were part of um, uh, of other organizations, Sigma and Gamma and Lambda Sigma Gamma. So other Latina and multicultural organizations that were like, oh, you should join it once you get into stage. You should join it. You should join it. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll check it out, you know. But for me, it was definitely going through the Summer Bridge experience, building that bond, and then seeing all my colleagues from Summer Bridge starting to join organizations, whether it was ACHA, Association of Chicana Activists, 
Mecha, which I was also part of, and Acha, and then joined the different organ- Greek organization. I was like, oh, that seems like oh. The parties were amazing, by the way. I ain't even, <laughs> even going to flunk. I mean, a Latino one-year-old party is amazing. Oh, so. my God, yes. <laughs> you get a bunch so, of college and, kids and Knowing me, I was like, yes, I am supporting every single social aspect of all of this. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it was very important. However, continue with it, because I didn't join. I didn't consider until I was, I was 21. Um, so, I, I mean, it was I, I entered college at 17. So it took me a minute. And one of the things that for me was important is I, I never saw myself within any of those organizations. And then once I saw those organizations, I didn't see them at a national level. They were always local and local. And I was like, well, what if I want to go to Grasco de Brown? What if I want to go to Texas? What if I want to go to Brazil? Like I started traveling abroad and I started seeing that the networks that I needed to have internationally were equally as important nationally as the ones locally. So I was like, I got to think bigger. I got to think, I want to part, be part of something bigger. I, and the fact that we are the the first and the largest in the history of the world, actually, not just the nation, but the world, is something that I take a lot of part in. So, and it was an academic-based organization. Yes, we party. Yes, we did socials. First and foremost, you have to have the academics for it. Right. And that, to me, was like, that's why I want to be. So I saw the website. I met a bunch of the girls that were in the interest group, and I was one of the older ones. And they were super cool. I just, I it's just funny bonded. to now say you're one of the older ones when you were 21. Huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now right? you see a 21 year old like, oh, you're baby. Like the sisterhood was there. So once I, once it took us three years to get established. Actually, it was not easy. So working in student affairs, being impacted by my mentor at the time, my counselor Liz who's also been the counselor to some of my actual blood sisters. Um, she just never let me quit. She always went above and beyond. And she she picked after my mess several times because I, I wasn't the, the best student because I didn't know the kind of need and support that I needed at the time. I just knew that I, would, I felt I wasn't good enough in my studies. So being surrounded by a group of sisterhood outside of what my college experience was going to be, I knew that there was a place for me after leaving college with the sorority. So for me, that was important. Like when I saw a chapter in Baltimore, Maryland, when I saw a chapter in Washington state, I was like, Oh, okay. There's something bigger for me. All right. And then I just like, there was that confidence that I saw the girls with that to me resonated. It wasn't cockiness. It was confidence. And I was like, you, you part of my tribe. <laughs> so when we established a chapter in 2005, that was the semester before I, I, I was able to walk. So it was very important to me to see it through. I didn't give up. I was like, oh, I'll stay next semester. <laughs> <laughs> and so for me, it was it was pivotal. And um, I'm still in touch with my line sisters. I was just meeting up. Well, actually, she was at the breakfast. Last Friday, she was in town, ran from Thousand Oaks. And she saw kind of what I'm doing now. And and now my sorority partners with my current employer, with Mana. And it's because of my sorority sisters at the time that they were mentors. When we were in college, I got introduced to Mana. So it's there's oh, a reason for yeah. all of this. So now we partner with my local chapter for our conference to be able to provide support. And we have about eight or nine sisters, one of them who's in the executive uh, board. And uh, they're mentors, and it's just it's not it fits. It was the right the right organization for me, and I'm very proud of them I, across across the nation. And and I'm very proud. And the one thing is, I always kept an open mind and how to, to collaborate with the other organizations because this is what I would tell the girls: when you're walking across that stage, your parents don't know the difference between your letters and mine. That's true, and that's what I would tell once like little bickering would start because they would. I'm like, once you walk across that stage, your mom doesn't care about the letters that you're wearing across your chest. She just knows that she wants you to be happy and finished. Yeah. So that's what kept me going. And that's the kind of the vibe I like to keep in amongst the girls. So once you graduated, obviously you still had all of these connections. Did you did you go and start working with Mana right away? Like what was your kind of path? To- no, I was involved sporadically. So it wasn't it wasn't all like all in. We actually one of my line sisters and explain to what to people what mana is because I there's people that are outside of San Diego and not Latino mm-hmm. that aren't probably have no idea. So what mana, is. mana stands for the Mexican American National Mexican American National Association. Um, it it started in 
in the 70s in the East Coast, actually. And it's merged into the West Coast in 86 here in San Diego. And um, and in the early 90s, they shifted, or late 90s, actually, they shifted the meaning short to short for hermana, to be inclusive of other Latinas from other regions, as we saw the immigration patterns come through. So we wanted to be more inclusive. So instead of, yes, we, we recognize it, we value it, we're proud of it, but también we wanted to also represent the sisterhood more than just... And that's so important. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had other conversations where we talk about the differences between different, you know, the different nationalities within the Latino community and how sometimes it's very hard. Mm-hmm. Like within a neighborhood, it's very easy for us to come together. Yes. But politically, it's not easy we don't have somebody to coalesce around and I know this is becoming a pattern of something that I've been speaking about but that's because it's so important and it's so true because if we don't find something and so to be able to change it from that to stand for more like hermana that we're all together that we're all this sisterhood is vital and so important and it's important because it's very seldomly paves the way in an unbiased form and welcoming not just Latinas, but you're welcome to join the sisterhood as long as you believe in the empowerment of Latinas. Mm-hmm. So you can be a male, you could be a Caucasian sister, uh, you know, an African American sister, an Asian sister, any any ethnicity or gender that you identify with, and be supportive of the sister and empowerment of Latinas because that's where the equity or the lack of and the equity, feminine queer community as yes, well. Definitely LGBTQ. So being able to be part of that, it was it was only a natural fit. So after college, I actually um, ended up working for UCSD for five years. So I went into that whole like aspect of empowering people. I would tell my story. And this is when we, we were used to register a lot of people for health benefits, actually. And we used to register the Latino community for, um, it, it was called Healthy Families. I don't know if you remember that program or it was a big initiative. So I would call people and just are you registered for your insurance? Are you registered for your... I believe that I lived it, so I was able to do that. So I moved up the ranks at UCSD, and essentially my goal was that I was inspired by my counselor, by by um, my counselor, so uh, by Liz, and I wanted to be a college counselor. So what I did is I went into, um, I wanted to be in student affairs. So I went into a, a different, uh, a, an opportunity that led into being an admissions counselor at UC San Diego. Oh, wow. Well, now mm-hmm. you are the Director of Development and Member Services at Mana San Diego. Yes. So once you've, now you're an executive within a nonprofit, and I think you're like, is probably very fortunate that the organization that you're with, of what it stands for. But tell me, do you see a difference, and we kind of touched on it before, um, finding the balance between your work maintaining your health, maintaining your personal life. Is that something that you find is, has it been hard to accomplish being in a executive position within an organization that you're at? And then how has the response from Manna San Diego, how has that been in regards to working with you on that? So actually today is my four year anniversary at Mana. Congratulations. (laughs) And it happens to be when we're recording this, it happens to be international Women's Day. <laughs> Yay! So to me, it is it's an, it's been an honor. It's it's definitely been a uh, like it's la trayectoria that I was meant to to be in. Mm-hmm. So I was um, so for me, it it has been a love and an endearing and a learning experience because I'm a workaholic. <laughs> so I'm that type of student that would take in 19 units, work full time, and you know run an organization on the side. <laughs> so I've always been an overachiever, for lack of better words. But it's been definitely as I've gone older to understand that when you have a partner, that takes no change time. It's like a relationship. Your work is a relationship. Your partner is a relationship. Your family is a relationship. Your friends are a relationship. And they all need to be nurtured equally. Your health is a relationship with yourself. So, um, yeah, it's tough. It's it's very, very tough. But I feel very fortunate that I am in a workplace that supports my crazy ideas. And I feel comfortable enough to say, Ugh, there's a lot on my plate. And um, and be honest with it and say, like, hey, I'm taking on X, Y, and Z in my positions. I need to step back. So 
um, sometimes in the nonprofit world, and I think I've, I've worked at several nonprofits, you have to understand that the movement is slow. I worked in several nonprofits as well. Yes. And then you're also wearing, you're not, your role is not just your role. Your role is yours plus five others, really. Essentially. So, yeah. So I do, yes, I do development, which is fundraising. So we fundraise over $870,000 and I'm a team of one in collaboration um, uh, with our, uh, right now it's only me doing it and it's mostly only me. That's my main role. But I also oversee the membership side of things which is over 500 members and i also oversee about 16 events and then uh yeah Oy, it yeah. takes a team to be able to do that and it takes a toll i had not taken a vacation in almost two years and i worked long hours and i feel very very lucky that i spent the time in investing in my career at this rate so that i'm able to get to the next executive role when when that comes so um, whether it's within MANA or within an opportunity in the community. So I, I, it was that kind of investment for myself because MANA invested in me and I knew I had a goal I needed to set. And I told them, watch me. It is unheard of for a nonprofit to almost triple its budget in under three years. It's unheard of. Um, but we did it. So, That's and it was awesome. a group effort. I couldn't have done it without people. So it, it, it um you have to have honest conversations and you have to have a lot of loving people around you to say hey make sure you make time but in order to get the job done my job requires a lot of, i'm always on which is a double-edged sword but it's it's something that i feel very passionate and that i love my i love my job i say that all the time i love my job so um yeah i i, I love what i do and and i feel very blessed to be able to grow within it and define the role that i'm in what are you curious about right now? I am curious about about the reality of what a Latina goes through, especially as an executive. We're very far and few between. And this conversation has come up, especially lately, as we had our breakfast last week. Um, I had this conversation with Starla Lewis, our, our guest speaker, and I was like, Having permission, having to wait for permission, there's a lot of times where people invest in you, they invest in you, but they say you may not be ready to take on the actual responsibilities or leadership roles. And I see that and I've been having those conversations with various women that are either in the same in the same path as I am or in similar paths or are experiencing something. I'm not personally experiencing this, but I've been noticing these conversations where like, Yes, you get all these trainings, you go through the development, but you're not actually given the opportunity to either be selected for the leadership roles. Yeah, selected. A lot of people say, oh, we should go for it. But then you're not selected. That advocacy for people to believe that you don't need to, it's kind of like when, as women, sometimes self-sabotage by saying, oh, I don't have 90% of the qualities. I tell people all the time, like I, and I've even said in job interviews, if I'm, if I was, if I'm 100% qualified for this position, I don't want it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be fully qualified for any position, any new position I go to, because I'm going to be bored. I need something to grow into. I need something to learn. I need something that's going to stretch me. Mm-hmm. And I think so many of us, we look as women and particularly even probably more so as Latinas, you look at things and if it has 20 qualifications, if we don't have five, we're like, oh, we're we're not qualified. Men can have 10 and they're like, oh, I'm going to go go for it. it. Yeah. 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 So for me, it's like having to kind of go back to receive permission from community leaders or people, mentors or, or just family members from the end and saying, Yes, you've been training for this. You should go for it. Take a leap of faith. Um, and I, I find that very, I'm very, very curious as to why we are much harsher on Latina women than men. I find, or other ethnicities. Um, and why is it okay to invest, but not advocate for the actual role? Why you have to be either a, a certain age or a certain demeanor in your personality has to be more, more, um, specific or or prominent for you to be selected so that's something i'm very curious to to talk to different leaders community elders uh, as to why because we need to start paving the way mm-hmm. you know and you need to start younger if you're going to do that i'm a firm believer of that agreed what is something 
whether it's personal or professional, it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. that you've failed at. Because I'm a firm believer that failure is necessary for growth and opportunity. So mm-hmm. what do you think is something you feel Very interesting. Like? There's a saying in my sorority that says success is failure turned inside out. And I, I like that. that. So that's part of one of our, of our um, sayings that we have. Something that I failed at um, most recently. Hmm. It doesn't have to be most recent. It can be mm. something from a while ago. You know, one of the things that for me has not been the best is I haven't made myself a priority, my health. Like I made myself two years ago, I lost 50 pounds. I gained 25 of them back. And, and, and part of me, I feel is because I haven't given myself the enough importance um, and or time to myself, to love myself, to exercise, to, I do it. I mean, I run half marathons. I'm running six this year, but not enough to go back to that, same mentality that I was in two years ago. And I think I'm really, really hard at myself. And part of that forgiveness and being nice to yourself, because I'm such an overachiever, I constantly fail at that. I need to be better at that. I want to be better at that, being nicer to myself so that I can accept where I am and move forward. Because sometimes you have to rest to be able to heal, to move forward, whether that's spiritually, whether that's emotionally, whether that's physically. So, um, that's something that I'm consistent thinking about constantly and saying, okay, whether it's, you know, feeling too confident and, or coming across too confident and saying, you know, be kind to yourself. You are confident. Women are looking at you. Yeah. It's not a show. It's, it's just who you are and you shouldn't be sorry for that. And just being nicer. I think being nicer to ourselves will allow us to men. And I compare this to men, but a lot of individuals are, always nice to themselves uh, regardless if something doesn't go the right way I, I hold it very personal it's hard for me to let go of stuff so I understand that if there was one piece but this is the last question before we get to the final fun question okay one piece of advice that you would give younger Latinas looking up to make a difference in their community invest in yourself first it's true. You got to invest in yourself first. What does that mean? Before you go and try to save the world, which is always nice, you need to prepare yourself to be that leader. You need to invest in yourself, whether it's training, whether it's education, whether it's traveling, invest in yourself first. Don't try to save the world as a 22-year-old. You're going to have your 30s and your 40s for that. Invest in yourself. Travel. Go to school. Get to know the world. Get to know the world. And know yourself. Yourself before you go off and save and try to have, you know, save your family or save the world. (laughs) So for me, I think that's one of the things I'm so happy I did in my 20s. I traveled to over 20 countries by the time I was 24. That's awesome. Yeah. Yay. Thank you. So now the the easy questions. (laughs) Okay. The fun, easy questions. All right. What is your favorite word? My favorite word. Probably. <laughs> One of my favorite words is um, chingona, I think, right now. Right yes. now. That's ever-changing, chingona. Because I was so looked down upon, honestly, when I first started saying that. They're like, oy, no digas eso. But now it's like an empowerment. Yeah, I'm so glad it's caught up in the last two years. Yes. Because I've, I've always felt like an empowerment word. So let me just say, I have a friend staying with me from Argentina. Uh-huh. And they don't have that word. Oh, okay. they don't have chingon or chingona, yeah. and I have a shirt that says chingona state of mind, right? Mm-hmm. And he was like, "What?" He, he's like, "I'm kind of familiar with it because I've heard people say it, but I've wait." He's very, it's very specific to um, Mexicans and Latinos in the U.S. That mm-hmm. particular phrase. So he yes. was saying he didn't really understand it until he came here and met some people. So yes, I love that word. Do you actually? I'm gonna change it i told you what i was going to ask but i'm actually going to change it what is something that no matter what your mood makes you smile oh man uh when i see the hashtag padelante that's been kind of like kind of almost like my favorite word but when i see that when i go back and i see someone sharing my post or 
most recently when I hear someone like, oh, you know what? You really inspired me to go run a half marathon. I was like, I cheated him. Okay. I did that. <laughs> I was like, cool. Like, I don't, I don't see myself in that role. And I guess it's part of that kindness. But every time I see someone, whether it's an executive or whether it's a young, you know, junior high girl, I, it, it makes me smile when I, I see them owning that message of Padelante um, because it's, it's definitely something that defines me. What is your, being a local, being a native San Diegan, <laughs> what's your go-to order at your favorite restaurant? Does it have to be a restaurant? No. Oh, okay, it's a taco shop, girl. Girl. <laughs> well, oh, man, I'm going to have to cheat. Oh, no. No. Okay, so my favorite, 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 it depends what it is, but favorite food is the roll tacos with American guacamole. I love roll tacos. I just had roll tacos last night. <laughs> Was the night before. I love that taco. So my deal has this awesome uh, taco. And you might my cousin. My cousin's Tony. He's on the radio. So, um, so uh, yeah, I love their American guacamole with both tacos. I can eat those every day, and I and I have eaten those every day. <laughs> every once in a while. But if I were to say like a restaurant, oh dad. You can never go wrong with ho dads in Ocean Beach. Uh, no, there's one in downtown, girl. Oh, there is. Like a mile away from here. How did I not know that? I've never. Oh been my there. god, off of Eleventh Street. You need to go. Okay, we're, to, we'll make a date. Yes, we we'll gotta do. go. Okay. Um. Finally, mm-hmm. I know you don't drink. Well, you do drink wine. Every, uh, every, every now and then. Yeah, yeah. So, what is your go-to? Red, white, rosé. Oh yeah, yeah. Out of those three. Oh, is there another? Uh, sparkling. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> is that not wine? That's not wine. <laughs> no, it is technically. It would, unless it comes from Champagne, France. It's sparkling wine. Oh, okay. Sparkling wine, like a Prosecco or whatever. Okay. Like, yeah. I, I love sweet. I love sweet. Like, yes, red out of bread and white, red. But if it's sparkling, heck yeah, girl. We that with a little bit of uh, strawberries and chocolate. Oh, girl, good. Yes. <laughs> oh, there you go. With that. We are done. Oh, salud then. Salud. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I am so excited for all of the things that you're doing, all the things that you're doing with Mana, and to see who is, you know, following up because I know so many people are are looking up to you and mm-hmm. using you as an example of things that they want to do within the community. So I'm excited. Yes. <laughs> so until next time, mi gente, saludos. Thank you so much, Rosa Maria. Uh, That was really eye-opening, especially because I have a family history of diabetes. So it was just a very, very eye-opening thing. Um, I do want to make sure that I note for you that Rosa Maria is a daughter of Mexican immigrants and was the first of her five sisters to attend higher education and she holds degrees in psychology and Chicano studies. We didn't get to that, so I want to make sure that I added that in there. But guess what, mi gente? I have a surprise for you. If you're in the San Diego area and would like to treat yourself to a day of wine and sunshine, the San, the Uncorked San Diego Wine Festival is coming up. It is right around the corner on March 28th. And if you use the code the wine and chisme, you get an additional $5 off. So I want to make sure that you know you can, the link will be in the show notes. You can also find it in Eventbrite. So make sure to get your ticket today. Do you have a story that needs to be told or know someone who does? Then please reach out to me via my social media channels. You can find me on Instagram at The Wine and Chisme and Facebook at The Wine and Chisme Podcast because I want to hear your story. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Cheesemate, please subscribe, rate, and review. Those five stars are appreciated, and good reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, mi gente, saludos.